The following audio is from a sermon series entitled Built for Glory, Meeting God and Finding Freedom Through the Book of Exodus. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Hear the word of the Lord from Exodus chapter 17. All of the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages, according to the commandment of the Lord, and kept at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore, the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water. And the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They're almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you, there are the rock of Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah, because of the quarreling of the people of Israel, and because they tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord among us or not? Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, Choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek, while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. And whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hand grew weary, so they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it, while Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this as a memorial in a book, and recite it in the ears of Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, The Lord is my banner, saying, A hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we, Father, we praise you. We thank you for this very special morning, a morning where, where you're starting something new, beginning a new church. And Father, I pray that, that not only would this be an exciting day for us as we kind of set out on this journey, but would this be an exciting day for our city that there would be another gospel preaching church in our cities, a place where people can hear the good news of what Christ has done, can hear about a, a heavenly father who loves and cares for them, that they can hear that they belong They've been sent out on mission. So I'm praying this morning, Father, that this would be a place where you are glorified, where the name of Jesus is propped up high. Pray that your spirit would be among us this morning, and specifically pray for our ears and our hearts, that our hearts would be softened, that our ears would be unclogged to hear the good news of of Christ. Pray for For me, I pray for my mind, that you would think through my mind, that you speak through my mouth. I pray, Father, that only words of truth, only words from you would come forth. Father, would we be nurtured and encouraged and led through the goodness of your word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Amen, amen. So if you want to open up your Bible, we will be in Exodus 17, kind of picking up right where we left off last week. And you might be thinking, well, what do you mean? We're just starting the church. What do you mean we're picking up where we left off last week? Actually, we have been commissioned and sent by another church here in the Quad Cities, Sacred City, which is located in Davenport. And we have been going through the book of Exodus together. And we are since September, actually, we're currently up to chapter 17. And so it's not like, oh, let's, let's start a church and preach through a weird passage of scripture. No, that's not the case at all. We are going to continue through the, the series and um, carry on until we actually finish the book of Exodus, which will probably be sometime toward the end of this year. Um, and what, what I've been shocked by as we have gone through the book of Exodus is, is the relevance of this book. The relevance of this book to us even today, that even thousands of years after this, this book was written down, that is still, it's still just as potent and instructional as it was the day it was written. And I think that that is the beauty of God's word, that it's both timeless and it's timely. It comes to us at, right, at the right moment with timeless truth. And so if, if you are just joining us, then don't, don't worry. You're not going to be behind. I'll catch you up and kind of bring you up to speed about what's happened so far. But if you would like to go back and listen to previous sermons, you can go to our website, sacredcitychurch.com, or you can go to uh, the iTunes store and find our podcast and catch up that way. Like I said, the book of Exodus has been very helpful. It's been very timely. And really what it does is it serves as an indicator or even a trail guide for what we can expect in life. If you're a hiker or maybe a rock climber, you're familiar with this idea. You go to a new place. Um, you're not really sure where to go or what to do. And you pick up a trail guide or maybe you go online, you find a trail guide and it tells you how to navigate through the woods. Okay, at this rock, turn right here and you'll find the face that you want to climb or at this tree, you're going to want to turn here. And so it kind of lays out a roadmap of, of where you're heading. And, and Exodus has actually served as that. It kind of shows us what's going to happen, what, what are things that we're going to experience. In fact, it might even make sense of things that have already happened in our life. As we work through this book, we see similarities between ourselves and the people of Israel. Israel was a people that was oppressed by Egyptian slavery. And we are people who have been oppressed by sin and death. Israel was a people who had been delivered from their slavery through the Red Sea. We are a people who have been delivered from our sin through the atoning work of Christ and, and faith in him and participation in his baptism. Israel was a people that wandered through the wilderness, a land in between the, the place to come. And we are kind of the same, where we are currently in this in-between period of, of we've been saved, we've been delivered from our sin, but we're still waiting for the kingdom of God to come in its fullness. And so there's great parallels for us to pick up on here, great things for us to learn from the story of Exodus. In fact, Paul, when he's writing to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians, he says that what Israel faced in the wilderness happened as examples for us to learn from. So it is with today's passage. And, and in today's passage, we're going to see that this Exodus story, while it's, there's been high highs and, and we're starting to see kind of the low lows or the low lows of Egyptian slavery and then out in the wilderness and what that entails, we're going to see that things are going to start to turn a little sour. 
After 400 years of cruel Egyptian slavery, God leads Israel into a wilderness rather than taking them straight to the promised land. See, it's important for us to see that, that it was God who's doing this. If we don't see that it's God who's leading them, then we're, we're prone to two mistakes. One, we're gonna say that either Satan is the one who's causing my bad times to happen. He's the one who's making my wilderness seasons come about. And the other mistake would be to think that, that our wilderness seasons are punishment for sins that we've done in the past. See, that's simply not the case. If we, if we think that it's Satan who's bringing about, who's making these wilderness seasons happen, we're giving him far too much credit. He can tempt us, he can try to derail you, but he cannot make things happen. He is not sovereign. So don't confuse Satan's scheming, his plotting, with God's sovereignty. On the other end, if, if you think it's punishment, then your view of God's justice is just too small. Right? Your sin is far more grievous than just a little bit of relational tension or, or physical pain or bad health. See, the only appropriate punishment for sin is death, as Romans 6.23 tells us. Now, some of the wilderness seasons we enter into might be consequences for our sin. It's sort of a, a consequence of our foolish. Let me illustrate that if you were a lazy worker, a lazy employee, and you, you were late to work, and when you got to work, you didn't do your job, and, and then when you, you're, when you do do your job, you are rude to your customers. See, you're, you're bound to get fired at some point. Now, you getting fired isn't necessarily a punishment. It's just a consequence for your foolish actions. But here's the good news, that even in our foolish actions that lead us into seasons in the wilderness, seasons of difficulty and struggle, God is still leading you, even in the wilderness. You see, it was God who led the Israelites into the wilderness for his good purpose, and he also leads us into wilderness seasons as well. What does that mean? What is a wilderness season? What does that look like? A season where we face adversity or where we are tested. A season where we feel as if there's no end in sight, where we've bitten off far more than we can chew, where maybe we've lost a loved one or received bad news about our health. Maybe things are financially tight or we feel relational strain. Whatever the scenario is, whatever your wilderness scenario looks like, it is God who led you here. And we want to say, well, why? Why would God do this? Why would he lead me into such a difficult and trying season? Why would he put me in such a pinch? The reality is that the answer to that question rarely satisfies when we're right in the heat of it right? You're in the wilderness. You're, you're facing a tough time, and, and you've got that friend that's got all the answers. You just don't want to hear it. And, and I think that's kind of the case for us as well. But, but it's when we look back or when we learn from another person's mistakes or, or their wilderness seasons, what we see is that, that God is leading people into wilderness seasons, specifically the people that he has saved, in order to make those people more fit for the kingdom of God. You see, after delivering Israel through the Red Sea, God was preparing them for the promised land by taking them through the wilderness. See, for 400 years, they have lived a subhuman life. 
For 400 years, they have been exposed to the idolatries and the the demeaning mindset of Egyptians. They needed to learn what it was like to be a human again. See, to use a technology illustration, their operating system was corrupt. They could not function the way that they were meant to function. So what God had to do was he had to reprogram them. Philip Ryken, who is a commentator on this passage, he says that going through the wilderness wasn't necessary for the Israelites' salvation, but it was necessary for their sanctification. See, in a moment, God delivered them from slavery, took them through the Red Sea. They were saved. They were freed. They were liberated. But there's still this slavery mindset that's dwelling in them that needs to be worked out. He needed to sanctify them. Now, what does sanctification mean? Sanctification is the process that follows salvation where we become more beautiful in Christ. See, it's this process of being made fit for the kingdom of God. Salvation means that we have been brought into the kingdom of God. Sanctification means that we are being made, remade, and formed to flourish in the kingdom of God. Tim Keller says this. He says, you can take a person out of slavery in a second, but you can only take the slavery out of a person through a process. See, this is what sanctification is. It's this lifelong process of becoming more beautiful in Christ. See, it's not a, a climb up the ladder sort of a deal, like where you put more, the more time you put into your sanctification, the more like Christ you are, and then therefore the more God loves you. That's not the case. That's a very legalistic view of sanctification. To be more accurate, sanctification is the process of refinement where sinful debris is removed from our hearts as we're exposed to the fullness of God's love. It's like a a goldsmith who purifies gold. He he takes the gold and he heats it up very hot, so hot that either the debris burns away or it comes to the top so that it can be removed. See, this is what sanctification is meant to achieve in us, to remove the sinful debris of our hearts. This is what the wilderness season produces for us and for the Israelites. Clement of Rome says this, that God brings Israel through the wilderness so that he might root out the evils which had clung to them by a long-continued familiarity and indulgence in the customs and idolatries of the Egyptians. You see, the Israelites would not flourish if God had just dropped them in the promised land. The brokenness of their background would follow them, and it would come back up. It would, just, it would be time before they start oppressing one another. It's this reality that wherever you go, there you are. Right? Your, your, your background, your, your experiences, they follow you unless those things get worked through and refined. See, this is what God does in sanctification. He slowly remakes us through the process of exposing us to his love. It would be kind of like a drug addict, to use this illustration. You cannot just drop a, a drug addict who wants to change. They want, they want to kind of have a fresh start. You can't just drop them in a new city and say, there you go. There's your fresh start. It'll just be t- a matter of time before they go back into the pattern of addiction. See, something has to change internally for external change to happen. Desires have to be reworked. Their habits have to be changed. Their mind has to be renewed, and the same is true of us. 
In order for us to thrive in the kingdom of God, we have to be reformed to love the things of God's kingdom. Specifically, we have to learn how to depend entirely on God and be satisfied in him. Well, how do we learn that? We don't learn that in textbooks. We don't learn that in Bible studies. We learn this through the challenging trials and difficulties of life. See, it has to happen in the hard times because if we don't experience it in the hard times, we'll never believe it in the good times, right? If, if my life is going smoothly, if my wife is happy, my kids are behaving, things at the church are going well, I've got money in the bank, I don't need to learn how to be dependent. I got, I've got it. I got it handled. But it's when God exposes us to the times where, where he really exposes our need in a real way, that's when we learn dependence. That's when we learn trust. That's when we come to the end of ourselves. And to experience this, we, we have to be aware of our need and we have to see how God meets that need. This is what's going on in the passage we're at today. The Israelites have two big needs. One, they need water. They're out in the wilderness. They have no water. And the, and the next, next part of this passage is that they need help defeating their enemy. But, but to show them that God is able to meet their needs, he takes them through this process. And, and it's not an easy process. It's, it's really quite challenging. There's a steep learning curve. So, as a pastor, I would be failing if I were to tell you, well, here's how to avoid these wilderness seasons. Here's how to sidestep them. You can't do it. You can't escape them. They're coming. They will come. If you're, if you're in one right now, then you know that. If you're coming out of one, then, then you also know that. But if, if you're like, oh, I haven't had any wilderness seasons, then you're bound to experience that in your future. So what I want to do today is, is ask these questions. How can, I, how can I gain everything I can out of these wilderness seasons? How do I know that God hasn't just abandoned me and left me for dead in these seasons? How do I know that God is for me and not against me? Right? And so it's with these questions rattling around in our head that we want to wade through Exodus 17. So if you want to jump to verse 1 of 17 with me, we'll start reading. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages. Listen, according to the commandment of the Lord and camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore, the, the people quarreled with Mor Moses and said, give us water to drink. And Moses said, why, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? Now, the first thing that we see in this passage, it's kind of a hopeful thing, actually, is that God's people, Israel, are 
are seemingly trusting God enough to do as he commanded them. He says that God commanded them to leave in stages and go to this new land, and so they do that. But even though externally they're following God, they're doing what he said to do, we can see that there is this internal discontentment. There's this internally grumbling. There's this internal distrust of God. And, and what we actually see is from the last, um, from chapter 16, this grumbling has intensified. It's no longer just grumbling, it's, it's quarreling, it's an argument. And it exposes a deep, deep frustration in the heart. And, and, in, and when we experience that, it's easy to put the blame on our leaders. It's easy to put the blame on the government or the pastor or my MC leader or my boss. It's just our natural tendency But here's the deal, this, this quarreling that's going on, it's, that word is kind of soft. It's a, a soft translation for what's actually happening. When I, when I read the word quarreling, I'm thinking like uh, when my brothers and I were younger, we'd sit in the back seat of the car and we'd just be like jabbing each other and, and trying to fight under our breath so mom and dad can't hear us in the front seat. You know what I'm talking about, moms and dads? You experience that? But this sort of quarreling is, is not so much that sort of bickering. This is a flat out, lawsuit. They're putting Moses on trial. They're taking legal action. They're pressing charges on Moses that, uh, of attempted manslaughter. You see, this is, this is very clear in, in verse 3 where he says that it's, they're basically saying, Moses, this is your fault. You've brought us out here in the wilderness to kill us. Now, Moses has experienced this once already. We saw this last week in, ver- in chapter 16, and he responded to their grumbling by saying, your grumbling isn't against your leaders, it's against the Lord. Now that is, that's kind of a shocking statement, it, and it's quite revealing, actually. Though our situations are significantly different than what the Israelites are expecting we are grumblers, kind of by default, whether it's my job or my marriage isn't going very well or my kids aren't doing what, we're grumblers. We find things to grumble about. And we might try to downplay this. Oh, my, my grumbling isn't quite that big of a deal. It's like, oh, pastor, I, I'm not really angry with my leaders or, or with God, actually. I'm not... I'm not, I'm not angry with God. I'm just venting a little. It isn't that serious. It's just a little bit of complaining. But you see here, the undertones of our grumbling, the undercurrent of our grumbling is a finger-wagging accusation that God doesn't know what he's doing. That's what it is. It's a finger-wagging accusation that God doesn't know what he's doing. Or, or maybe it's a finger-wagging accusation, God, you're not even here with me. You don't even care about me. See, this is very clear that this is happening with Israel. Their internal dialogue has become very, uh, it's become audible. They're fed up. They're, they're sick of what's going on in the wilderness and they're wanting to kill Moses. You see, they're, they're kind of, thinking to themselves, well, we did what God told us to do, and here we are in the middle of the desert with no water. Why? We're sick of this. And this, 
This is this idea of moralism that's setting in. I do this, and then I get this in return. Right? We do this all the time. When we're talking with God, God, I go to church. I, I, I gave my tithes this week. I showed up to MC. I, I did this, this, and this, and this. Why don't you step up and, and deliver this? See, it's this idea that, that I'm doing my part, and God's not doing his. This is the mentality that moralism and legalism breeds. Tim Keller, I love how he says, what he says about this passage, he says that this is a metaphor for life, right? You try to be good, you try to be moral, you try to be religious, you try to be decent, and what happens? You come to a dead end. Things just don't pan out the way that you hoped. And on top of that, you're angry and resentful, And in that anger and resentment, this question, we see it in our text, creeps in. It's like, God, are you even there? Do you not see what's going on in my life right now? See, Israel does this. They say uh, later on in the passage, say, is, is the Lord even with us or is he not? See, in this accusation, we, when we read this, this accusation seems so absurd because we have the, the luxury of being able to go back through the story of Exodus and retrace their steps. Was it not God who delivered them from Egyptian slavery through the passing of the Red Sea? Was it not God who led them by a, a pillar of fire and a pillar of cloud? Was it not God who provided for their daily needs by giving them the manna that very morning that they ate? Let that sink in. That very morning, they went outside, picked up their food for the day, and they ate it, and they turned around and said, God, do you even care about us? You see, this is the danger of our human hearts, of our fallen human hearts, that we are so quick to forget that God is here with us, that he's here leading us, he's here providing and protecting us. It's very alarming, especially when you see the contrast of the Israelites here. Now, the people of Israel seem to have this sort of spiritual amnesia, but what about Moses, right? The fearless leader, he's, he's got to have it figured out, right? Certainly, he remembers what God has done. So let's take a look. Unlike Israelites, Moses, he actually cries out to God in prayer. It's a step in the right direction, Right? but we see that prayer is laced with the same grumbling of his people. John Calvin, in commentating on, what, on Moses' prayer, he says that some, there's, there's something in these words which sounds angry and rebellious. Let's take a look. Verse four. So Moses cried to the Lord, what shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. You see, this sounds like an honest question to ask, but, but in the wording, there are some red flags that should pop up. First is, is, what am I supposed to do? See, Moses is making this about himself. What do I need to do to fix this problem? Now, Moses has been around the block enough to know that, really, there's, he has very little power. He's very limited capabilities. Everything miraculous, everything amazing that's happened so far in the story of Exodus has been God channeling his power through Moses. 
And so it's not him, it's not up to him to fix the problem. You know, and I think so many of us can relate to this. I think moms especially, kind of this rubs us in a certain way, that we feel like it's our duty to always meet the needs, our duty to always make sure things work out. But when we live that way, when we feel this this unbearable ownership that we aren't meant to take on for our situations, what we're doing is convincing ourselves of the lie that we're in control. And we're not. Second thing that throws up a red flag is, is that mentally and relationally and even spiritually, Moses is distancing himself from the people. He, Moses, man, you've got to know this guy. He's agitated. He's fed up. He's irritated. He's getting questions day in and day out. People come into him, what do we do here? What do we do here? We'll see that in, in chapter 18 next week. And he's tired of being the guy that has to do everything. And so now he's, he's putting himself on the line, really, for these people. He's, he's stepped out and he's, he's leading these people in a really significant way, and now they want to kill him. But his response is to distance himself from the people. He removes himself from their company. So it's not, when he's praying, it's not, what do we do? What does the congregation do? What do the people of Israel do? He says, no, what do I do about this people? This people over there, you know, those sinners. See, this is what happens when we don't have an accurate view of ourselves. We elevate ourselves above others, especially when we're being criticized. To deflate the criticism of others, we say, well, they don't know. They don't know what I know. They aren't like me. I'm different than them. See, when Moses looks at the people, he sees just a bunch of sinners, sinners everywhere. But when he looks at himself, he doesn't see that he's a sinner too. He doesn't see that he's one of them. He thinks that he's in the right, they're in the wrong. And, And what's happening here is Moses is forgetting a big piece of the gospel, Right? He's forgetting that all are sinners and deserve the just wrath of God. Now, if Moses were seeing himself accurately, what he would be saying is, Lord, help us. We need you. What do we do? But that's not the response. See, in this, Moses' sinful heart is revealed. Again, we, we've seen his sinful heart revealed a couple times now in the story. But here's, here's the good news for us, because if Moses was this great man who God used in mighty ways, and he's a sinner, this is good news for us, that even here in Bowling, Illinois, that God also uses sinners for his purposes. See, God uses sinful men and women to accomplish his will. Just because we are sinful people doesn't mean that we have been disqualified to be used by God. See, there's this old Puritan saying that God uses crooked sticks to draw straight lines. That's a good one. Moses is that crooked stick. He is, he's, he's sinful, he's messed up, but God still uses him. See, his lack of faith in God doesn't disqualify him from leadership. God says, 
it's still your job to lead them. Go, go lead the people. And so we'll continue on in verse five. And the Lord says to Moses, this is what he's saying, pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel and taking your hand the staff which you struck the Nile and go, behold, I will stand before you on that rock at Horeb and you shall strike the rock and water shall come out of it and people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders and he called the name of the place Massah and uh, Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they had tested the Lord saying, is the Lord among us or not? You see what's happening here? God tells Moses to take the staff, and this isn't just any staff. It's not just a stick he picked up off the ground one day and kept it. This is the rod of God. This is the rod, the staff that God has used so far in the story to show his authority and his power, right? In this, in this, with this staff, God used it to, to judge Egypt by turning the Nile to blood, God used this staff to split the waters of the Red Sea and then close it back up again. So when people see Moses take this staff, people pay attention. Something important is about to happen. And God tells Moses to gather the elders and go to Horeb and and then God would stand before the people. Now this is a big deal here. This is a detail that oftentimes gets overlooked, that God would stand before the people. So this, this means when someone is to stand before someone, inferiority is implied. To stand before the king means that you are subject to him. But this is kind of backwards where God says, I'm going to stand before you, right? This is the just, holy God who says, I'm going to stand before the people. Never again does this happen in the Old Testament, People will always stand before God. But this time, God puts himself in the place of the people. This is so crazy. So just imagine a courtroom situation here. We see Moses, he's, he's, um, he's on trial. He's the defendant being accused of attempted manslaughter. You see the plaintiff, who is the people of Israel that are fed up with Moses, and they're just trying to rail him, prove his guilt. But at the same time, these are the people who are guilty of treason. And the judge sits on his throne, and he sees the guilt of both parties. Neither one of them are going to get off the hook. Both of them deserve to be punished, to be sentenced. And then what happens? The judge says, you know what? I see the guilt I see what's going on here. I am going to take your place. I'm going to stand on trial where you are standing on trial. So court is in session. The verdict is reached. And Moses strikes the rock in judgment. See, this shows us that God is willing to take the punishment of his people. That the undeserving God, the righteous and holy God who has done no sin, he has done nothing wrong. God has not sinned at all in this wilderness. He is incapable of sin. He is the one who takes the blame. He takes the judgment of the people. So this rock is struck and water pours from it. What they need, they are thirsty, they're parched. What they need comes out of it. 
the streams of water, and the people drink their fill. And so it's in this season of the wilderness where we see that God doesn't just pull us out of the wilderness. God provides for us in the wilderness. See, that's good news, that he's there meeting our every need. Now, I kind of want to end the sermon here and just chew on this stuff because this is gold. This is like a preacher's dream right here. But we have more to the story. There's more to go on to. So I want you to just put a mental bookmark here, and we're going to continue on with the the remainder of the verses. Look at verse 8. Verse 8. Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. Okay, so here here what we're seeing is that the situation or the scenarios that Israel is facing continues to intensify. At first, they were hungry and then thirsty, and now their lives are being threatened by this new enemy, right? And and this enemy kind of comes out of nowhere. We, We don't really know why this enemy is attacking them or, or getting up in their face. Um, but it's clear that they don't want them to go where God is taking them. They're trying to stop it. While Israel is minding their own business, they get attacked by Amalek. Um, Deuteronomy 25 actually tells us that, that this started by um, Amalek poaching off the stragglers of Israel, the people who are probably um, older, maybe diseased, that can't move as fast as the rest of the group who kind of fall behind. They're getting poached off as Israel goes to the wilderness. But here's the thing. This is, this is what I love about Moses and his leadership. The, these people, it doesn't matter who they are or what their capabilities are. They're his people. They're people of God. They're people of Israel. And so Moses says that we have to defend our own. We have to fight for this people. And so verse 9. So Moses said to Joshua, choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the the top of the hill with a staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought Amalek while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Now what's going on here? Why isn't Moses going out to fight? If he's their fearless leader, if he's the one who's leading the pack, why is he not going out? Well, what Moses is doing when he's taking Aaron and Hur up to the hill with him, what they're doing is they're going to go pray. Now, it doesn't say that explicitly, but the gesture that they make and and what we'll see raising up their hands to God, it's a gesture of dependence. It's a gesture of petition, of of interceding for the people. And so Moses goes up to pray. This is what spiritual leaders do, right? Whether you're, you're a parent, you're an MC leader, whatever your um, arena is in which you're leading people, you are to pray for the people that you're leading. So while, while they're praying up there, Joshua is sent out with an army to take action and fight. Now, what is interesting about this, I think it's really fascinating, actually, is the depiction of what happens in the Christian life. And I wanted to say a balance, but I don't think it's a balance. I think it's, it's a, a both and. It's, it's not a, you know, huh, huh, huh sort of a thing. It's these things are happening simultaneously. And those things are prayer 
and action. See, prayer and action are necessary for us to live the Christian life. Think of, it, think of it in terms of your sanctification. I can't just pray that I would know more about the Bible, right? Oh, dear God, please, please impart all the wisdom from the book of Joshua to me and then never pick our Bible up and exert energy studying, right? We have to do both. Praying for the wisdom that's in God's word to saturate our hearts and our minds while putting effort forth and studying, or in mission, right? We don't just pray for our neighbors and hope that somehow, some way that they'll come to know who Jesus is. We pray for them while we take action. We build relationships with them. We open up our homes to them. We get to know their stories and we get to speak into their stories when God gives us the opportunity. So our life must contain both action and prayer. See, I, I think that most of the time, I know this is for me, that I'm, I'm actually more um, readily, I'm, I'm more ready to jump on the action part. I'm ready to do stuff. Stuff that's gotta be done, I'm ready to go there, do it. But we also have to have this prayer. So I, I, can't, just, I can't just do the work of parenting, right? I can't just you know teach my kid this and do that and read this book. I have to be praying for this child if I want, them, want to see them come to faith in Christ. Well, God's gonna do it regardless if I pray or not. But that, as part of my responsibility as a parent is to pray for my child. In, even in my preaching, I could, write, I could write a great sermon. Grammatically, it'd be excellent. It would make a lot of sense. It'd flow perfect. But if I'm not praying, if I'm not going to God in dependence for his spirit to fill my words with life, then it's all done in vain. There has to be participation in both praying and actually doing something. If we just pray, we miss out on and miss out on the action part. We miss out on God wanting to bring us into the work that he's doing. And if we don't pray, then our actions become futile. See, this is exactly what happens with Joshua in verse 11. Take a look. Um Whenever Moses held up his hand, right? This is a gesture of praying. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. And whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. See, Moses, this is his mistake, that when he starts to see that things are turning around, things are going good, he stops praying. He says, well, we've got this now, right? All we needed was just a little bit of help. But to stop praying... Listen to this. To stop praying is arrogant and prideful claim of I got this. I got this. I know how to be a good parent. I know how to disciple this person. I know how to, 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 to participate in this relationship. See, if we have an accurate self-perception, we realize that we don't have this. Right? And, it, and if you do think, oh, I got this, then, then you have been deceived. See, thankfully, Moses quickly realizes that he doesn't have this. And he returns to prayer. Verse 12, Moses, where he's praying and his, his hands grow weary. Right? And, and you have to stop and think just for a moment. Like, okay, there's an army out there fighting. 
They're running around, swinging swords, running from camp to camp. Wouldn't they be tired? Right? They're actually doing the physical work here. But it's Moses who grows weary. Moses Moses' intercession, his prayer for the people is far more demanding than the work of fighting. See, most of us have this sort of turned around. We think that the hard things in life are the tasks that we have to check off of our to-do lists. But really, the most difficult thing that we can do, difficult yet rewarding, let me add that, we can do is go to God in dependent prayer. It's not difficult because it's a grueling task or it's unenjoyable to go and be in God's presence and fellowship with him. It's difficult because it requires us to admit that we don't have it, that we don't have it figured out, that we need help and lots of it. You see, Moses' physical fatigue represents this spiritual fatigue that he feels while he is interceding for his people. Millions of people, might I add. So if you, you're an MC leader, just to put this in perspective, like I know I get this way, got 15, 16 people on my MC, it's like, oh, they, there's so much stuff going on in the lives of my people that I got, I'm praying for them, I'm lifting them up before the Lord. Moses has millions of people that he's interceding for. We'll see in eight, chapter 18, that's not a good idea, but he feels that weight He feels that heavy load and it is too much for one man to carry so much that Moses can't even hold his arms up alone. Take a look at verse 12. But Moses' hands grew weary, so they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it while Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side, so his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. See, Moses couldn't keep his hands up. He couldn't carry that weight. He needed other men around him to help shoulder the load, to to intercede with him, to share this leadership responsibility, to sacrifice their energy for the good of their people. You see, we need people like that today. We need men and women who are willing to do the same thing, to exert energy interceding for the people of the church. And we specifically need men to step into this as and lead the church as elders of God's church. So even, even in the early stage, I mean, we're just launching our church today, first Sunday, and I'm asking that God would raise up men to stand alongside of me. So I wanna ask men who are out there, is God calling you to this? If yes, man, I wanna talk to you. I, want, I wanna walk alongside of you because our church needs men like this. Israel needed Aaron and Moses and her, and we need men like that. And as those men, they continued to intercede for Israel, God proved again that he was looking out for him, that God had this under control. See, Israel, we'll see in, we see in verse um, 13, and Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with a sword. This is happening while Moses has his hands up depending on God to do so. God gave them exactly what they needed in order to defeat the enemy. And so we see in both sections of this passage, we see a needy and capable people, and we see God giving them something that they could not obtain on their own. 
right? Victory against the enemy. We see them, him giving water from the rock that was struck. And as I wrap this up, see that these are great passages and, and they don't really make sense unless we see how they point us to Christ. And in, in very significant and beautiful ways, these things shed so much light on the work of Christ. Paul, again, in 1 Corinthians 10, he explicitly tells us that Jesus was the rock that was struck. It wasn't the people, the sinful, bickering, quarreling people who were struck. It was Jesus who was struck for them. You see, there was another day that would come where God would stand before the people. Jesus would come before Pilate and the crowds, and they would chant, crucify him. Jesus subjected himself to an unfair trial so that sinners like you and me would be let off the hook. We would experience his grace and forgiveness. See, Jesus interposed himself. He put himself in the middle of uh, of us and God's wrath against us. He took the judgment that sinners and scoffers and revilers deserve. And while Jesus was on trial, he never questioned God's plan. He faced the most severe of circumstances without ever doubting or testing God. Look, and what did it get him? It got him killed. He took the blow so that sinners like you and me could live. And just like that rock that was struck, living water pours out from Christ. Water that satisfies our deepest of longings, our deepest of needs. Makes us a satisfied people, even in the wilderness. So let me ask you, are are you satisfied right now? While you're out in the wilderness, are you satisfied? When cancer is rearing its ugly head, when your kids are rebellious, when your finances are gone, are you satisfied? If not, you need to come to Jesus and drink. Look to him who took the blow for you. Learn to trust him and you will find provision in your wilderness. But here's the thing, not only did Jesus take the blow for you, but Jesus was interceding for you as he was being struck, his hand stretched out. He was going to God on your behalf. See, just like Moses, who needed help holding up his arms, Jesus did too. It came in the form of nails piercing them. And you know what he prayed while he was holding his hands out? Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. See, Jesus was interceding for the forgiveness of the most bitter and grumbling hearts, the very hearts that had him crucified. And he said to them, take their punishment and heap it upon me. And God did. He poured out all of his wrath on Jesus so that those who would trust and depend on Christ for their salvation would be forgiven. And we can be assured that this punishment was enough, that Jesus was sufficient to take on this punishment because on the third day, Christ was raised from the dead. And that's to show us there was no more punishment to take. The cup has been drank dry. So Christian, knowing that Jesus has ascended into heaven, 
knowing that he is up high on the throne means that victory is ours. We are victorious over sin and death. And now, this is so good news. Now, as Hebrews 7.25 says, that Christ lives to intercede for us. That he's at the right hand of God, talking to him on our behalf. So as the father looks down and he sees us stumbling through our wilderness season, sees us grumbling and sinning through the wilderness season, Jesus points out, hey, hey father, do you remember I died for that? That sin is covered. Oh, that one too? Yep, and, and that one? See, Jesus is there at the right hand of God, constantly lifting us up to him. And the reality is that we need someone who can constantly and unwaveringly intercede for us because if we're honest, we are not as, as, as stable in the wilderness. We are far more likely to sin in the wilderness than not sin. And so we need someone who can constantly and unwaverly intercede for us. And so Jesus is the better Moses who does not get worn out by interceding for us. In fact, he delights in it. He delights He delights in showing us that we're forgiven in the cross. He delights in, in, in showing the Father that he has drank the cup of wrath and punishment dry. And that he offers us his salvation as a free gift of grace. And what happens when we experience the grace of his forgiveness and provision, we become a people who are marked by trust and dependence upon God. When we experience this, we learn how to trust Jesus. We become people who are deeply satisfied in Christ, knowing that he is all we need. That no matter what our circumstances, no matter what our wilderness season looks like, Christ will sustain us. We become a people who are marked by worship and devotion to God as we see Jesus interposing himself for us and interceding on our behalf. Church, let us be the kind of people that raises up the banner of Christ, that rallies behind him and sees him both interceding for us on the cross, or inter, inter, interposing himself on the cross, and interceding for us at the right hand of God. Let us be that kind of people. Father, we thank you for the finished and accomplished work of Jesus, which guarantees us our, our forgiveness of sin for those who come and put our faith in you. We thank you that, that you are all we need. It's not money, it's not um, shelter or friends or family, though you do choose to bless us with those things. You, you are all that we need. And so I pray, Father, that in whatever wilderness season that we're in, we would, we would come to your living waters and drink and be satisfied. I pray, Father, that we would see Christ victorious sitting at the right hand of the Father, interceding on our behalf. Pray that we would see him raised up on that cross and know that we are forgiven of our sins, that he took the blow for us so that we would not have to take that. And in that grace, we rejoice. We praise you and we thank you. For all this in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. The men.